Okay, with that, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we have to, to gather to worship you, to, uh, to, to focus our attention on the scriptures. Lord, we, uh, we, we come to this time reverently and in awe of you. We are, we are grateful that you have given us your words here. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would, uh, by your spirit, um, help us to understand the, the context of, of what was said what was implied, the implications from it, so that as we, uh, some 2,000 years and a, a whole culture removed from the original writing, Lord, that by your Spirit, we would see principles that apply to us as your followers. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one of us. Uh, may you convict us. May you help us to be more uh, mindful and thoughtful of our reputation uh, or your, rather your reputation um, through your followers. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help us uh, to be followers of Christ that, that ultimately bring glory to your name and your teaching. Uh, Father, we ask that you would help us to live our lives in a way uh, that honors you in real practical ways and in, in places uh, where the rubber meets the road. Um, the gospel did not come to us in a vacuum, but, but within our culture, within our setting. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom and, and that you would enable us by your spirit to, to live out the gospel in our various settings in life. Uh, we are grateful that your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And so we subject ourselves to you now and ask that you would do a work through your word in our lives. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. <clears throat> All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and of doctrine will not be spoken against those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and does He's conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and depraved of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask you, Lord, that you would help us now to navigate this passage. May it be relevant to our lives. May our hearts be softened to your word. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, as we continue our study through Timothy, we, we're sort of at the point in the letter where if we were on an airplane, 
We would hear from the captain, you know, please buckle your seatbelts, put your tray tables up, move your seats forward. Flight attendants will be coming, picking up trash. We have a few things to to wrap up, but you'll be in your destination in a few minutes. Uh, Paul, as he lands this letter to Timothy, has a number of things that he's going to sort of throw at Timothy that that are, that, that are some ways are, are kind of eclectic and, and kind of fit together, which, which makes sort of dividing these last few sections quite difficult. Uh, today, uh, we're going to end with verse 6. Verse 6 really begins to bleed into the next section. So next week, we'll go back to verse 6 and sort of do re-entry to, to help our, our, our transition from, from place to place. Today's subject deals with two, two points that can be difficult uh, for us to, to deal with. Um, as, as Americans in particular, we have a history with slavery. As Americans, we have a history of, of uh, revolution. Um, two things that God speaks sort of about um, in our passage today, verse 1, we're going to look at the context or this, the subject of, of a Christian, a follower of Christ, submitting to their non-believing master. Verse 2 will deal with the Christian submitting or honoring their master who happens to be a believer. And verses 3 through 6 deal with uh, the importance or the requirements of followers of Christ to submit to God's word, to, to, to his authority. And so we struggle with these things. I, um, before we get into this subject, I feel like I have to do sort of a, a, an extended introduction, uh, na- namely with slavery. Um, there's a whole lot of baggage connected to slavery in the United States. Um, in the last couple of weeks, I started noticing, you, you know, see, it was a, I wasn't, I couldn't remember during the first service what it was. I, I, it was, you know, Hashtag MLK 50, and it was the 50-year anniversary of his assassination. And, and I, uh, I kind of, when I was talking, I'm like, it could probably, it could have been 50 years already. Like I, like I, I was like, I had a hard time thinking it was his death because it seems like 50 years was a long time ago. It seems like it was more uh, near history. Um, and in the blogging world of pastors, there was a blog that kind of exploded in a lot of arguing. And, and I found myself really disconnected from it. I, I, I really, um, I've not been exposed to racism in large part. It just wasn't a part of my thinking. I'm from Southern California. I don't think that I was in circles that we saw it as a young man. I found myself in the military. I think the, the military is, at the time that I served, was the most uh, racially integrated organization out there. Your skin color means zero. Um, you all bleed red is the is the the culture of the military, and and um, so I never really struggled with it. And and as I saw this stuff, I, I I it reached the point because I wasn't sure what to even think that I started texting Ben, you know, the Ben Howard in in, uh, in Japan, and I started asking him some questions because he was raised in South Carolina and he has a very different feel. And as he began to talk and to share his position and his understanding of the situations, I had a couple memories, um, where I actually experienced racism in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that just left me sort of stunned. 
The first was after I completed SEAL training, the very next step after you graduate is to go to Fort Benning, Georgia to go to airborne school. Uh, Army and Navy guys don't get along that well. Uh, (laughs) I hear an Army guy laughing. And then you take guys who've just graduated SEAL training, who we're sort of at the end of our road, and airborne training is at the very beginning of their, these guys' roads. So the, so the culture is very different. And we didn't get along with them that well. And, and uh, <clears throat> trying to hold my tongue on the Army. But, but I remember when we got there, the, the, the Army, the Army instructor informed us Navy boys, he pulled us aside, and he said, I understand you guys think you're special, you've done all this Navy SEAL stuff, but you're in my, you're in my house now. And all I want to hear from you is clear Sergeant Airborne, not clear Sergeant Airborne. He said, clear Sergeant Airborne, we'll, 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 we'll honor that. You know, we're in our Cracker Jack little white uniforms that they laugh at, and we go about our business. And <clears throat> a couple days went by. Their haircut standards are very different than our haircut standards. <clears throat> Namely, we like hair, and they don't like hair. And, <clears throat> and, and so Sergeant Airborne in this inspection comes up, and he looks at me. I remember I was the guy that was start, like nailed. And, and he's like, hey, Elvis. I, uh, <laughs> apparently my hair was a little bit long on the side. He said, I want you to go get your hair cut, and it needs to look like this. And he pointed to his head. And his hair on the side, it was skin <laughs> with like some nubs on the top. So naturally, I look at him and I say, not clear, Sergeant Airborne. <laughs> and he said, I want you to go to the barbershop and I want you to tell them to do this on your head. Not clear, Sergeant Airborne. <laughs> He's getting more mad like as the whole thing progresses. I think I went on for like 20 minutes of not clear, Sergeant Airborne, not clear, Sergeant Airborne. He's like, why won't you talk to me? Not clear, Sergeant Airborne. Like you said not clear or clear. You gave me two options. And finally, he's like, I see what you're doing. Real funny. He said, can you just go to the barbershop and maybe get it off your ears? I looked at him and I said, clear, Sergeant Airborne. <laughs> so, so we as a group, we went to the barbershop. And it was the first time I'd experienced racism. I, um, I used a word during the first service quoting the barber. And I'm, I, uh, I, I feel that I won't do it because there's more younger generations. But the N-word, we all have heard the N-word. So I roll into the barbershop, and the first thing that stood out to me is all these guys are all smoking in the barbershop. I'm from California. You don't, like, smoking is like being a criminal here. You, know? like, you don't smoke in businesses. And so I go in there, and, and the guy starts cutting our hair, and he looks at us, and he says, hey, you should be careful because there's an N-word, children, out in the parking lot. And I remember just sort of, like I couldn't even respond because like, I... It, I'd never even heard or experienced anything like this ever, anywhere. And I thought it was like a dream or like, is this like, did I enter into a movie from the 40s or something that I, and so we went on from there and a couple years goes by and I find myself in my second platoon and we found ourselves in Memphis and we were off and we were out on the street and it was, we, we roll in groups and we had a guy in our platoon who happened to be a black man. And so we're like, hey, let's go to lunch. We're going to go into this, whatever this restaurant is. And he looked at us and he said, I can't go in there. I'm like, what do you mean you can't go in there? He's like, no, guys, I, I seriously, like, like, I can't go in there. And I'm like, 
well, they might have used some language that I would, but it was like, you're going to go in there. Like, we're a SEAL platoon, and we're pretty sure that we can get the guy to make whatever we want to make. And we rolled in there, and they came in, and they said, hey, you need to leave this establishment. We'll call the sheriff. And we're like, hey, actually, we're doing training with the sheriff. Call him. We're, we're serving, and you're serving, you're, you're serving us. And um, <clears throat> so I recognize when I, while I'm a bit naive to the reality of history of slavery in the United States, I recognize that my naiveness to it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And so when we come to a text that uses the word slaves, I recognize that culturally we're going to have some pushback. Um, And so the first thing that I, I need to point out is that biblical slavery isn't necessarily what we imagine as Americans with the baggage of our history. And so before we get into this text, I need to sort of explain some of the the varying aspects of slavery that you would see um, biblically. And so the first is there's sort of two groups. Um, One we'd call uh, Hebrew slavery. Uh, This is found in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 35 uh, 35 through 43. We're not going to read the passage, but you can go there on your own. Verify me. Um, The Hebrews had a a sense where a person could uh, voluntarily go into slavery to increase their economic standing. Um, This idea bled into um, Roman culture and became known as sort of uh, indentured servitude, where where a person voluntarily um, entered, gave their life, sold themselves to an individual so that they could have a better job, better stability, better opportunities, um, that they could launch ahead. In my dabbling this week of studying, or like kind of just tracking rabbit trails of, hist- of slavery just because it's like I, I know I'm going to have to deal with this, it was, it was fascinating to me to learn or to like relearn what I forgot from school um, is that over the historians suspect or speculate that that over 50% of the original colonial americans were indentured slaves coming to the united states um, they believe like a lot of irish this is this is how they funded their transportation they couldn't afford to make the transit from europe to england so they became indentured servants and there was a a, a, a contracted period where they would have to serve the master to pay back for their transportation there. Now, you might think, oh, we don't live like this anymore. But I'd hate to break it to you that many of us within our congregation, I'm not going to ask for a show of raise of hands, but there are many of us today who are indentured servants that are under the the Hebrew, that we have uh, subjected ourselves to slavery so that we could increase our economic standing. My master, my slave owner, is his name is Mr. Wells Fargo. I don't know who yours is. You might have Chase. You might have whatever. Wells Fargo seems to be the biggest slave owner. <clears throat> but, but we enter into a contract with an organization, and we say for the next 30 years, I'm going to pay you this much money so that I can increase my standard of living, 
by being able to purchase a home. And at the end of this contracted period of 30 years, I will be free from you if I maintain these conditions. Now, you can get out of that by selling your house, and you know, there's a lot of ways out of it, but, but really, that's the idea. Um, student loans, you see, I'm not talking about the, the good or bad of this, but this is how people subject themselves, and if you are in debt of any level, like, you realize, like, yeah, yeah, yeah Wells Fargo, I'm a slave to Wells Fargo. Like, that's, that's I've, I've willingly placed myself in subjection for the purpose of increasing my economic standing. Now, Roman slavery during the time of Paul's writing, there's some, there's variance amongst historians, but it's, it's believed that anywhere from one-third to one-half of the population were slaves. Now, there were, a vary, there were varying, amount of, uh, varying ways that an individual could become a slave. Um, to look at my notes here, just not off memory. Uh, the first thing that stands out is it wasn't based on ethnicity or race. Necessarily. Ethnicity, maybe. If you were a prisoner of war, that was one way that you could find yourself as a slave. Uh, if two countries warred with one another, one, one. Instead of executing the military guys, you could be taken into slavery and you would become a slave. And that, so that, that would be like potentially ethnicity, but I don't know that that's, it would be more about your uh, passport that you had, that you represented one nation. Um, you could, uh, indentured servant, like we talked about, you could choose to sell yourself as a slave to get a better paying job, a more stability life. There were, there were slaves who were government officials. There were slaves that had all sorts of different occupations. Many slaves during that time also owned slaves. So you could be a slave and you could own a slave. It wasn't like, it wasn't, you, while you were on the bottom rung of society, it wasn't necessarily the same thing. Um, you could be um, a slave um, because you were a criminal. If you committed a crime against an individual and you need to repay back your debt, the, the ruling could be that you're going to become a slave to this individual until you pay back the amount that you wronged them. Um, so there was a number of different, I'm seeing if I, um, you could be a victim. I think of Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. You know, his brothers got mad at him. So what did they do? They threw him in a pit because they wanted to get rid of this guy who had all these dreams that was frustrating to them. And then what happens? These bandits come by, they take them, and then they sell them into slavery. So you could be, that, and that would be close to the African slave trade that we have in our history. So you have all of these options, but most of the options are sort of indentured servants. These are people who are slaves. Um, I think the point here is most likely slavery that we read in the New Testament that you're thinking about doesn't align with the slavery that are the stain of the sin of slavery within our nation. I think the, the most important thing, while the Bible doesn't necessarily speak on the issue of slavery directly, which I think is why a lot of Christians during the foundation of the United States and in Europe use the scripture to support slavery in a very ungodly and unbiblical way. The guiding principle that we have about slavery and the Bible support that it's wrong, we would go back to Genesis and it would say that all men have been created in God's image, in the likeness of God. And that's not how slaves were treated in the United States. But the main point, before I get distracted here, is that the main issue on slavery in today's context is that Christianity, the teaching of the scriptures wasn't given in a vacuum, meaning that here's all the teaching of how to be a Christian and it's sort of like in a void away from the real world over here. 
Christianity was delivered like, hey, you were called as a Christian. This is the context. How does Christianity work out within the setting? So the second issue, so we have slavery. Hopefully I've dealt with that enough to move on. The second issue that we are terrible at is submission. We as Americans just don't like submission. How did America come to form? The Revolutionary War. I had a Christian friend that asked, he's like, I've really been wrestling over like the biblical validity of that time. Did, was there biblical support for the early Americans to revolt against England? He's like, and the more I study, the less I'm convinced that the Bible supported what we as Americans did. Thank the Lord I'm not living back then, so I don't have to answer that question. I'm dealing in the, you know, a couple hundred years later. But from the Revolutionary War, Americans are independent. Valley Center rights are even more stubborn country. Like, there's an independence amongst us. And so we don't like being under subjection. But when I read the New Testament, all I see is like subjection, subjection, subjection. The Bible doesn't speak about revolution. The Bible speaks about transformation from within. But we don't like subjection, and none of us are not without subjection. You might be independently wealthy. You might have no. Uh, you, you might not know Mr. Wells Fargo like I know him. Uh, you might not have to work uh, anymore. You might be self-sustaining in every respect, but you are under authority. From the, from the micro picture is if you get in a car and you drive down the road, you have a police officer that will remind you that you are in subjection to the authorities that are over you. You also have a creator that you are in subjection to. And the things that he says apply to you. Um, so we all have been called to be a submissive people. And I'm not speaking about times when there is, we're not dealing with the biblical times for pushing back. We don't have time to deal with that. But, but overarching, the scripture calls us to this picture of a very, very high God, a God who is sovereign over all, and that he has appointed all, whether you can understand it or, or reason or make sense of it all, he's placed all the authority over you. He has appointed them, good or bad. And he's called us as Christians, we've already seen it in Timothy, to pray for them, to subject ourselves to them so we could live peaceful lives. So I'd ask, as we go into this passage, point number one, I say point number one, but just disregard my numbers. They mean nothing. We'll probably have like five point number ones. Um, to consider this passage in light of your life, we all are in subjection. We are not necessarily slaves, but you are under subjection in a variety of different ways in your life. Um, your place of employment, education, homes, the law, um, we all have been called to subjection, submiss being submission. And the thrust of this passage is overwhelming. I would encourage you just to look at the first two verses. Just quickly, look at your Bibles, skim through verses one and two quickly while we're just sitting here and see if there is a point that jumps out at you that there is a, hey, Paul wants us to get this one thing, the reason why it is that we should care about subjection and how we live our lives in the world that we're set in. Does this jump out at you? It should. The second half of verse one. So that the name of God and our doctrine, that's teaching, will not be spoken against. Paul cares about the glory of God, second to none. 
He doesn't care about himself. He doesn't care about that. He cares about his life and the reflection that he has upon God. In our culture, our names mean really nothing. Um, I, we, you know, like we go places and it's like, I don't like, hey, sons, you're a Hanson. We have all of these Hansons that you're, you, like, you're, like, like generationally, we're segregated. Like we don't in America really, in large part, care about generations like other cultures. Other cultures you go to, you visit, you, I mean, go to Mexico, go to other places. One generation understands that they might be 10 years old, but the things that they do and the things that they act, it, it affects great-grandpa, great-grandpa's reputation, grandpa's reputation, dad's reputation. Like it, how you behave matters to the family name. Was well, a Christian, whose name do you carry? You've been grafted in. You carry the name of Christ, little Christ. So everywhere you go, you're carrying his name. And Paul says, I want you to live your lives in a way so that the name of our God and doctrine will not be spoken against. Your life and how you live, it matters to God. I think it's the second, catechi- the second question of the catechism that says, what is the chief aim of man? The answer is, um, the chief aim of man is to give glory to God and enjoy him forever. That's a, that's a purpose of our existence. And as Christians, uh, we should care. And, and, and this struggle, as we come to this passage, is to remember that our first need is redemption. And if you've been redeemed, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells you that you're a new creation in Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. There's transformation. The Bible doesn't call Jesus' followers to go into revolution. The Bible calls for transformation, and through transformation, it affects the world around you. If you love God, you'll love his name, and you'll care about his name and the impact that you have. So with that, let's actually get into the first verse. Wow, 30 minutes into this, I'm in the first verse. (laughs) You guys are like, oh, we're in trouble today. I've covered a lot of ground, so we can move quickly now. So all who are under the yoke of slaves... Okay, so Paul, as he writes this, he's addressing two-thirds of his audience, potentially, or uh, up to one-half. I got my math backwards. At least two-thirds of his audience, most likely more like a half of his audience, would have been slaves. They are to regard their masters. The implication is that these masters are non-believing masters. He says, all who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. He says, you have subjected yourself to slavery. You're in slavery for whatever reason. This is how God called you. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 20 through 21. We're not going to go there, but Paul addresses slaves. And he says, hey, what was your condition when God called you to Christ? What condition do you find yourself in as a slave? Well, good. You stay there. You remain. If you can get your freedom, he says, hey, that's wonderful. Get your freedom. Go for it. But whatever condition you were called, you remain there. And you honor God in that position. The, the, the Bible deals with these complex issues of now we have the birth of the church. So within the church, we have slaves and we have masters. Culturally speaking, the Bible's not dealing with the right or wrong of that. It's dealing with the reality that, that Christianity is not in a vacuum. It's in a culture, and a context. And so in this context now, in the body of Christ, you have slaves and masters now coexisting. You could have a slave that was an elder of the church that had authority over a, a member of the church that was actually his master. Talk about how do we deal with this? One of my favorite little letters is Philemon. It's after First and Second Timothy. There's only one chapter, so it's, you're not, there's no chapter. It's just this little letter. 
that the apostle writes to this guy Philemon. Philemon was a Christian slave owner. He had a slave that stole a bunch of stuff from him and took off. This slave was not a believer. This slave eventually got arrested somewhere else away from his master. Guess who he met in prison? The apostle Paul. Guess who led him to Christ? The apostle Paul. They start serving together, I guess after they got out or whatever. I, don't, I forget if Paul's still in prison or the, the situation. But, but while he's there, Paul's like, your master's Philemon. I know that guy. We got a problem because now you're in Christ. You got to mend your wrongs. So I'll tell you what, now that you're free, what I'm going to do is I'm going to write you a little letter. And what I need you to do is I need you to go back to your master and you need to confess your sins to your master that you stole and did all this stuff. So don't worry, don't worry, Onesimus was the guy's name. I'll tell him. And in the letter, it says, Onesimus, listen, while I, was in pri- while I was in prison, or no, he says, Philemon, while I was in prison, I met this guy, Onesimus. I, I heard he was one of your slaves, and he ran away. He stole stuff from you. Guess what? He became a Christian. He's a follower of Christ now, and he's good for the Lord. Like, he is, he's doing great things, but he needs to be restored with you. And so I've, I've sent him with this letter to you. If he stole anything from you, if he owes you anything, credit to my account. I'll pay his debt in full. But I need you to give him his freedom. Please, brother, give him his freedom. Yeah, talk about a letter of reference. The Apostle Paul. So young, young Onesimus says, I'm back, Philemon. I'm really sorry. How did Philemon react? We, but, we, but we see this. That, that Christianity is not just some abstract faith. It, 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 the rubber hits the road. And in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There have been a whole lot of problems. I think that's why Romans exist. The book of Romans exists because of the Greek and Roman, uh, the Greek and Jewish confliction. There is neither slave nor free man within the body of Christ. There is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. And so now we're dealing with these issues. And so he says, all who are under the yoke of slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of honor. So what's this mean in practical terms? Let's just call our masters our places of employment. If you find yourself as a believer working for a non-believer, your life and your work should all be pointed towards honor and respect and a a hard work ethic for this non-believing boss. It shouldn't be marked with, oh, so-and-so, you're not a believer, so you're you're just going to hell. And I am of the chosen class. And so I don't need to listen to you and work. When you tell me I need to do this, I can just kind of whatever. No. Paul says you work with all honor. Tell them that when they work for their non-believing employers, that they work so that the name of God and his teaching will not be maligned. Your life and your ethic and your lifestyle speak volumes about the character and nature of God. The first time I ever experienced this was in the military. I had become a Christian in my first platoon through a whole bunch of messes. I got in the second platoon. I was trying to figure out how the two fit together, and I didn't know how it fit together, and I met Billy. Billy was a missionary kid. He grew up in Europe as a missionary kid. I I didn't know what that was at the time. But Billy was a warrior. Buddy was, like, sold out for God. Like, he'd be in a platoon space, and he'd be reading his Bible. I'm like, what are you thinking? He's like, hey, man, I'm not reading. I'm too nervous because they're all harassing me. I'm not making any ground, but I just want to my, my, put my stake in the ground that they know I stand for Christ. 
It's like, I'm not there yet, man. I'll keep my Bible reading in the toilet so nobody can see what I'm doing. I'll sneak it in there. And I literally read the Bible, not even going to the bathroom, just sneaking in so nobody could tell. And I, it was just, I smuggled it. It was, but then Billy, everybody, like from a warrior's perspective, this guy was dry firing. He was like, he spent his career at Dev Group, at SEAL Team 6, doing all sorts of stuff. Like amongst warriors, he was respected, but he was also respected for his faith. But his work ethic in the SEAL teams opened the door for him spiritually speaking, and this is what Paul's saying. He's like, don't, you're around, you work for non-believers, around non-believers, you honor them so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. The family name matters, and how you live your life matters. It affects God's reputation, so don't be a stain to his name. Then he goes on, those who have believers, verse two, as their masters. So now we, now we have those who are slaves They're serving masters who are also believers. This section of Scripture does not talk or address those who are believers who are masters. In other places, it does. And so I'm limiting what I have to say based on what the text is before me for time's sake. Those Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren. He said, if you have a Christian boss... Don't take advantage of their Christianity. A a few years ago, uh, amongst the chaplains at the Escondido Police Department, we were talking, there was a more seasoned chaplain. He'd been there for 20 years. And he was kind of joking about um, how about five years ago, he was driving through Escondido and he ran a red light. And then he saw a cop. And then like everything you... Like, everything that you don't want to have happen, you know? Like, I'm not endorsing running red lights, but if you ever happen to run a red light on accident... You just go, oh, please, let nobody have seen this. And thank you, Lord, that I'm safe. And that was like a bonehead move. Like, but he did that in the police officer right there. Then you see that and you cringe. Then the next worst thing is to see the lights go on. You're like, oh, man. The song, I Surrender All. <laughs> you know, like, so you pull over. And then he's talking about how he's there going, oh, man, this is super embarrassing. I'm a chaplain with the Escondido Police Department. I'm in Escondido, and an Escondido officer is about to pull me over. He said, I was vacillating in my thoughts, like, hopefully the guy doesn't know who I am or that he knows who I am and he's a believer. And he said, the guy that got out was a fellow Christian and that he knew at a good level. And he's like, oh, praise the Lord, I'll get off. He said, this was my thought. And then the guy comes, he, he's like, hey, chaplain, I noticed you, uh, you're taking liberties on those red lights in town and I, we need to talk. And, and the officer was going to let him go, but... But in that moment, the chaplain became so convicted that he basically forced the officer to give him a ticket because he didn't want to, to, to compromise his position and the authority of this officer over him. Really, this is what's happening here. He says, if you have a bleeding boss, don't, 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 uh, don't take advantage of, of, of his gracious nature. Um, if you work in a Christian environment... Like, it's a privilege. If, you have, if you're in subjection and there's a, there's, there's a relationship where you have the, the, the fellowship of being in, the, in the, 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 the fellowship of faith, don't use that to take advantage of them. A few years ago, I have a friend from high school who is, a, who is in the construction business. He's like the third, the, it's a family business, like third generation. And I remember I... I um, it was when we were at our old house and we were trying to figure out if we could expand it, if we knew Gideon was coming and we didn't. 
And it was like, well, what's it cost? Like, I'm like, I don't think I can do this, but what's it cost to like add on? And it was like, oh, it costs that much to add on. Okay, that's how. <laughs> like, that's. But I remember like talking with him and kind of saying, I'm not looking to do this, but I just want to get your feedback. And of, like, what does it generally cost? And so he started spinning all these numbers about, you know, like for every one square foot of property that you expand, it, it roughly costs this much money. And I was like, well, what if, what, if, what if you have, like, Christian friends that are, like, in the business? Can you get, like, this? And, and he's like, listen, I don't want to sound bad. He's like, I'm a believer, but I've been burned by so many Christians in this business that I tend, like, if you can find a Christian, that's great. But choose them based on their actual work ethic and let their faith kind of be secondary. And I remember he said that, and, it, like, it, it hurt. And, and I think that that's the point of this. When he says... Those who have believers as their masters, don't be disrespectful to them because they are brethren. uh, He says, you should serve him all the more. Like already, if you're serving a non-believer, you should serve them with everything. But he goes on to say, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. He says, recognize the beauty and the benefit of working in an environment like this. Don't take advantage of that. But all the more, be the one who polices yourself, who makes sure that, that you're the one who is putting forth work, uh, work ethic and diligence, um, all the more so because your boss is a believer. It's a privilege to serve in this condition. So he says, teach and preach these principles. What, what, what are the principles? Strong work ethic, regardless of the conditions. Don't let the circumstances, whether you have an unbelieving boss or a, uh, believing boss <clears throat> affect your actions? Like to understand that how you live your life, if you've taken the name of Christ, you have an impact on his reputation. So regardless of your circumstance that you find in your place of employment, in the place where you work, maybe it's your school, maybe it's a sports team, maybe it's a, what you fill in the blank, what, wherever your life intersects with other humans, Go about your day with the idea of the second part of verse 1. Where, am I contemplating how are, are my actions and my behaviors affecting the name of God? Do I care, like Paul, so that the name of God and our doctrine, our teaching will not be spoken against? This is convicting. I don't wake up in the morning and go, okay, Lord, how am I going to go about my day that you might be affected? I carry the name Christ. I need to honor him. But this is what he's telling us to do. It's another third aspect of submission, which sort of bleeds into next week, but we're going to quickly cover this. Verse 3, we deal with the main issue that Paul's been dealing with, or Timothy's been called to deal with, is that you have a bunch of false teachers under the banner of Christianity that are, that are leading the church astray, and Timothy's been left behind to deal with these individuals. And so he says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, uh, I, I need to deal with this word if. This is a first-class condition in the Greek, which <clears throat> I understand you guys don't necessarily care about that. But in the English, if means if, and it could or it could not be. In the Greek, there's five different classes that have varying levels of reality. So, so, the, so the latter down the line, it's if, but we don't really know. Like, if you do this, then these, it's a true if. A first-class condition could be translated since. So you could say if and there are. So we would read this, if anyone 
advocates a different doctrine that's teaching and does not agree with sound words, and there are amongst you, you could translate it. This is a reality in Timothy's life. This is a reality in the churches in Ephesus that is a problem, that there are individuals who are teaching a different doctrine. And this word different is, is the word where we get hetero from. Now, you might recognize this word heterosexual, homosexual. These are words that mean different. Now, heterosexual means uh, different of an, a completely different kind. <clears throat> navigate this, general terms. Men and women, generally speaking, totally different creatures, right? They don't control this. Men are different, but of the same kind. Women are different. You have two women, different, but of the same kind. Men, different, but of the same kind. So when he uses this word different, he's not speaking like, oh, the pastor is really reformed in his theology. And Joe, who's in the church, he's more, uh, 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 what's the other word I'm looking for? The other word, you know, not as reformed. (laughs) Not Calvin, that's reformed still. Like, what's, what? Arminian, that's the word I'm looking for. Those are generally two camps within Christianity, big tent, different sides. So this isn't like, oh, his theology is a little bit different over here. The pastor's over here. They're different, but they're really the same kind. These aren't like fight. We're, we're, we're talking, what he's saying is Galatians 1.6. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. This is the same word, different, different of another kind. This is... When groups, when I normally don't identify groups, but the, the Mormon church does not teach the same Jesus. The, the, uh, the um, Jehovah's Witnesses don't teach the same Jesus. It's a totally different, it's a different of another kind. And he's saying these people are teaching different things. Like this is not varying of opinions within the, the core Orthodox Christianity. We're dealing with the, the jugular vein. Who is Jesus. And they're teaching something totally, completely different from the gospel. And he says that they come in. Uh, they, uh, and t- uh, Let me just read. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, this word godliness is a word that matters to Paul. Remember back in chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, he says, a, a bodily exercise of a little value, but godliness is a value not only to this life, but the one to come. And godliness, as Charles Swindoll defines it, in its most simple terms, is taking God seriously. So he's saying these individuals, they have a different doctrine, not conforming to godliness, that they're not taking God seriously, they're not taking him at his word, they're not taking the revelation that's been given to us, that you have been entrusted to guard against young Timothy. He says, he is conceited and understands nothing. These who are teaching a different of another kind but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arrive not the fruit of the Spirit, but strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and depraved of the truth who suppose that godliness, that same word, is a means of gain. Now he's talking about financial gain. This is what we would say the prosperity gospel that he's saying taking things of the gospel and using it for profit. 
not teaching the truth. And then he moves and he says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain. But he's not speaking of the things of money. And this is where we sort of blur, we're, we're crossing over to next week's section. I didn't want to just tack the next few verses in today because it talks about this godliness with great gain, with contentment. What does it mean? What does it look like? And in the next four verses, he's going to deal with that. So we're only dealing with four verses next week. Paul says these guys are teaching another gospel. They're using godliness. It's, it's not aligned with the truth. It doesn't result in the fruit of the Spirit. It's not in agreement with sound doctrine. They're using the people, using godliness for the sake of personal gain. But godliness has great value, but we're talking about contentment that follows with it. And so ultimately, our, our aim as we conclude, like we're going to end, sort of in the middle, but we're, we're moving on. The, when I look at this, the, the number one issue is redemption. This isn't for you as a non-believer to look at this and say, oh, I need to kind of get my exterior right, make everybody think that I got everything under control because that's not what we're talking about. Our aim is redemption. This, this, this is talking to those who have given their lives to Christ who recognized that while they were a sinner, Christ died for them. That as Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 describes, is that you were dead in your transgressions and sins, like a dead fish floating down a river. And while you were in that state, God had reached down, transformed you, and changed you. It's through faith alone. It's by God's grace. It's not by your own works. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if therefore if anyone is Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. This is about life transformation. This isn't about external works. And the power of navigating life's circumstances through this transformed life, it, it has an overwhelming impact on the culture around it. There's something to become like Joseph. I... <clears throat> Just this morning, I found myself like I, I'm, um, the Genesis 5, 50, 20. It's the end of Joseph's life. So his whole family, his brothers, the whole setup is like really great. His brothers sold him into slavery. They don't recognize him. They're starving. He's got all stuff together. He sends him away. He sends him back. Hey, where's that other brother? And all this stuff. And then it finally comes together, and they're like, oh, no. The brothers realize that the guy they're talking to is the brother that they sold into slavery. Ruh-roh, we got a problem here. Because he is going to want to destroy us and he has all this authority. And what does Joseph say for you? You know, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. That's a transformed life. To say, I have this boss that's not a believer. I live in this work environment that they're not believers. God has called me here. And even though it's a struggle, it's a strain, I care more about the name of God, so I'm going to honor my employer. I'm going to work hard. Because what I care about most is God's glory and his honor. And this happens from transformation from within. And so you toe the line and you work and you, you serve. And if you're in a Christian environment, all the more so. It's a blessing and you recognize that. But there's something about life. We, we're in life. We're, we're in a fallen world and there's difficulties and there's people that you're going to want to punch in the face. But because God has transformed you, because God saved you, you say, Lord... As much as my flesh that I can't stand this person that's my boss, I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to honor him, not for myself, but for your sake. And through this, 
things happen. We, we sang Amazing Grace written by John Newton, who was one of the worst slave traders that ended up writing one of the most profound hymns probably in human history, Amazing Grace. And it begs to like wonder like, who had an impact on him that ultimately he could pen, well, wretched man that I am. It wasn't revolution. It wasn't, if he took all the slaves during that era, they could have totally overthrown. But when we look at all the hymns from that era of, of, of like, I forget what they call them, the black spirituals or whatever, these songs that are just, I think that's what the book, you know, like, I didn't, like, the, the bits I know, I was, I've already expressed to you, I wasn't really into this, but I think of, like, Uncle Tom's Cabin, the book, and the, from my understanding, is like, the, 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 the portrait in that book is this, this Christian slave being whipped in the boss or the owner who was a believer and the, the impact on them. How am I doing this to my brother that changed everything? That's not revolution. That's transformation, and that's what God's calling us to do. So let's ask him to help us. Father, we do thank you for the power of the gospel. It is, nothing, it is like nothing we know. Our inclination is to go to human strength, human power, human revolution, but that's not what your word has called us to. Your word tells us that you saved us in our death. We thank you that in Christ we have the spirit of God within us. We thank you for the transformation that we have. And Lord, we confess that so often, even though we have the spirit of God within us, we focus on our flesh. And so Lord, we ask that you would help us to be led by your spirit, that you would give us submissive spirits, spirits to desire to honor you with our lives. Wherever we find ourselves, maybe we're retired, but we interact with humans. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would radiate amongst us. For those of us that are working and have employers that are not believers, cultures that are dominated by a, by a non-believing world, Lord, we ask that you would help us to honor our employers in a way that the gospel would radiate amongst us, like from our lives deep within us. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your word more and more each day. Father, we ask that your grace would be poured upon us, help us to be led by your spirit, that we would be in step with him so that his fruit would manifest itself in our lives, that we would have love, joy, patience, kindness, gentleness, all of these things that are not of the world, that no law can restrict or legislate. Father, help us to be a beacon for you that your name would not be maligned because of our actions and our behaviors. We love you, Father, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.